Jason Kander has spent a lot of time running. First running for the Missouri legislature, then running for Missouri Secretary of State, running for U.S. Senate, then almost choosing to run for President of the United States, which Barack Obama said he should. Then he ran for mayor of Kansas City. But Jason was also attempting to outrun a mental health problem. He was on the run from PTSD. We're going to learn about post-traumatic stress disorder from the inside of that illness. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. Jason Kander sounds like the kind of guy who runs for president. Star baseball player and debater, goes on to law school, joins the army, sent to Afghanistan to work as an intelligence officer, comes home and becomes an incredibly ambitious democratic politician, rising through the ranks, developing a national profile. But in that list of things that Jason did, I kind of breezed over his time in Afghanistan a little too quickly because he was in fairly constant mortal danger there, often operating alone in situations where no one knew where he was, where he may be killed or have to kill someone at any moment. With trauma, something has happened that is too much for the brain to process in that moment. But the brain doesn't give up. It just tries again and again and again. It keeps trying to reason with what has happened, tries to understand it. For veterans, that again and again thing can mean applying the same mentality of military life to civilian life when they get back home. The same hypervigilance, the same tendency to kind of sleep with one eye open, to see threats everywhere. And that happened to Jason Kander, even as he ran for office after office, until in the middle of a race for mayor of Kansas City, he finally dropped out to get help. He writes about all of this in Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. Jason Kander, welcome to Depression Mode. Thanks for having me. There's a lot that you cover in the book, Invisible Storm, and I want to get to as much of it as we, as we can, because you've, li- you've lived a very full life in a relatively short number of years. But let's back up to before the military. Who were you before you signed up for ROTC and joined the military? Uh, you know, before that, I was uh, a kid from the suburbs of Kansas City who felt very strongly that I had really never faced any adversity. I think I was right about that. And I just felt like I hadn't been tested. And I, I remember I would frequently send emails home because, it, you know, I, I was in college on the East Coast and my uh, then girlfriend and soon to be fiance, now wife, who we'd been together since high school, uh, Diana was in college back home in Kansas City. And I would send these emails home that were like, you know, I've had baseball games and debate tournaments. Like, I don't, I don't feel like I've been tested in any way. And then 9-11 happened, and it was clear to me that a combination of civic duty, a sense of patriotism, and just this idea of like, oh, well, this is, this is what I was sort of looking for in a way. Yeah. And then how long was it between when you, when you made that decision to be part of that and you ending up in Afghanistan? So 9-11 happened, and then five years later, I was in Afghanistan. And what happened in the interim was I started law school in the fall of 2002, and that's when I started ROTC. 
Then I enlisted uh, in the guard along with doing ROTC at the same time in 03. So I had to go through all that training and everything. I'd go get my commission as an officer. I did not become an army lawyer, but I did ROTC while I was in law school. But the other intervening event that stopped me from just going straight in after 9-11 is after 9-11, I had decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to go into the military. And I went out, started running, started getting in shape, doing a lot of push-ups, and then promptly tore my ACL in a pickup football game with my buddies. So I had to go get surgery and physical therapy and get myself to a point where physically I could actually do what I needed to do to be in the Army. And I, I want to get to one of the key incidents of, of your time in Afghanistan and of your life, really, in a minute. But but first, what were you what were you doing in Afghanistan? What was your job in Afghanistan? So I was a military intelligence officer, and uh, my job was to do anti-corruption and anti-espionage investigations, mostly within the Afghan government. So, you know, in layman's terms, it was figuring out which bad guys were pretending to be good guys in the Afghan government. That required myself and my translator. Sometimes we were with other people. Oftentimes it was just the two of us to go out and take meetings with, uh, folks of, of questionable allegiance and certainly unsavory character and build relationships with them and then, you know, bring that information back and sort of send it up the chain. My boss over there, my, my colonel I worked for, he later told me that he dubbed what what we did as thugint, which was short for thug intelligence, which is not a real thing. He just made it up. It, it was, or somebody had made it up and he had heard it. And the idea was that we developed relationships with thugs in order to get information on other thugs. That was our job. Did the thugs know that you were gathering intelligence? Yeah, it was relationship building, right? I mean, you're going out, you're trying to make friends and get them to tell you things. But in order to do that, you know, they're not just going to start telling you things. You got to you got to have a good rapport. You got to spend time with them. You got to go to where they are. And that really was the riskiest part of the job was that on any given day, you were just of the concern about walking into a trap because you had to go to where they were, uh, be on their turf and nobody really knew where you were. And so if things went bad, you were going to be outnumbered, uh, and nobody knew where you were. So they weren't coming to save you. Yeah. And I imagine the people that you're talking to are trying to get an advantage on you and you're trying to get an advantage on them. And, and to some degree. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes, I mean, it, there's different motivations out there, right? Like yeah. sometimes they're narco traffickers and they'd like you to stop the business of their competitors. And sometimes they're, you know, corrupt in some other way. And they, they're trying to outmaneuver other corrupt people within the government. Sometimes they just you know, have the best interests of Afghanistan uh, at heart. But you can't really know that uh, until you know that. Right, right. Well, then let's get to this, the incident that happened with uh, General Haji Abdul Zahir Qadir, if I'm pronouncing that somewhere accurately. Yeah, yeah, pretty close. Okay. And this was this was kind of a turning point event. Tell us what happened with that. Uh, it was kind of a turning point, but really, uh, to be honest, it was just sort of the easiest example to use for the book, because I didn't want to fill the book full of stuff that, you know, I, I didn't want to write a war memoir. Um, because I know I understand that there's a market for those books. It's, you know, men in their 40s and 50s <laughs> at airports. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I wasn't trying to limit myself to that audience. That said, I did take a few uh, stories and put them in the book to illustrate things. And, and you know, that story, l looking back, it's funny. It's it's almost hard to 
call it an incident. But at the time, I mean, that's how it felt. And the story is that uh, I had developed a relationship with a guy uh, named Sabit, Abdul Sabit, and he was the attorney general of Afghanistan. And I developed this relationship because he purported to have an anti-corruption campaign. And it was very valuable for me to have a relationship with him to learn more about his anti-corruption work. And so I would go over on a semi-regular basis and sit with him at his compound in Kabul. And these meetings were fruitful and also kind of fun because he really didn't have a discernible reason to kidnap me or anything like that. It wasn't much reason for concern. And he had gone to law school at George Washington. So his English was really good. So I I generally, my translator didn't have to do much. So these were good meetings and people knew I had this relationship and they would sometimes ask to come along. Uh, And so in this case, it was a couple of guys from the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and their translator who who wanted to join me to meet Sabit and build a relationship of their own. So I, I, Got a meeting with Sabit. We went to his compound. But when we got there, things were a little little different than usual. There were these guys from the border police, which there was no reason for them to be there. But these guys from the border police met us right out front. And they had their weapons at the low ready. And they were telling us to leave our weapons in the vehicle, which was not something that you do in Afghanistan. But those of us who had rifles stowed a rifle in the vehicle. I took my pistol and tucked it into the waistband of my pants. We were in street clothes. And we went in. And I'm thinking the whole time, like, well, these guys from the DIA may think I'm some green lieutenant, but I'm I'm not stupid enough to actually leave my weapon in the vehicle. So we go in, we have this meeting, and to our surprise, Sabit has a guest with him, a, a friend, he says, who is visiting, and it's Haji Zahir, General Haji Zahir. It takes a second to realize that's who it is. This is a guy who, at the time, we were actively investigating. Uh, he was a general in the border police, and he was actively corrupt. I mean, he he was working with the Taliban. He was a narco trafficker out at the border. We were actively investigating him and he was kind of moving up the charts as to, as to how he'd be treated. And it was pretty clear that he knew that we were the ones investigating him. And we sat there for about 45 minutes with his guys standing behind him with their AKs at the low ready. So we were outgunned and they had the drop on us anyway, because they were standing there with their hands and their weapons. And we were supposed to not have weapons. And he's getting increasingly during this meeting uh, more and more aggressive and angry, talking about what's going on at the border. And eventually I'm sitting there thinking, okay, if he gestures to these guys behind him, then I'm going to have to shoot first. That's the only way out of here. So I'm picking out which guy I'm going to shoot first. I'm thinking at first, like, am I allowed to shoot these guys? And then I'm going, it's not going to matter here in a minute. And so things get really intense. And then eventually it becomes clear that his aim is actually to try and get us to arrest some of his competition out at the border. That happens after about 45 minutes of intimidation. And I kind of take a deep breath and my heart slows down a bit. And I realize, okay, I'm I'm not going to shoot these guys. And we're probably going to get out of here alive. So we leave and the meeting ends. We leave, we get to the vehicle. And that's when I notice that the other guys I was with were all reaching into the vehicle to get their pistols. I was actually the only one in there who was armed. I had come very close to pulling out my pistol to start a shootout, which it turns out would have ended very quickly because we all would have been killed. And then I got kind of sick to my stomach at the thought. And then I just got really angry at those guys. <laughs> so so that's that story. But I mean, the, really the point of that story was, while that was, you know, a stuck point for me uh, in my therapy, it wasn't hugely atypical of the kind of stuff. I mean, that is the closest I ever came to 
you know, just starting a shootout in the middle of one of these meetings. But it's similar to other situations that you had already been in and would be in following that. It was similar in the sense that, you know, you, you sit in these meetings knowing that you have to be friendly and kind and, and personable and charming and ready to kill everybody and watch the exits and know how many people in the room are armed and how many people between you and the room you're in are, are armed, that kind of thing. How long were you in Afghanistan? I was only there for four months. Okay. And did you notice anything right away in terms of, because then the PTSD is starting to develop, it's germinating. Did you notice a difference in yourself? Uh, when I came home, I did. When you're over there, it's it's sort of like what, the lobster in the boiling pot. I mean, you, you're not aware of it because also everyone around you is also in Afghanistan. And so that's the environment you're in. When I came home, first thing I noticed was I had a like a, a muscle spasm in my eye, in my eyelid. It started like the moment the the plane out of Afghanistan landed in Qatar. I woke up and I had this muscle spasm in my eye. And that lasted like six months. And then I had other stuff, like every time I would get in a vehicle, my heart would race. But that made sense to me because for the past four months, every time I'd gotten in a vehicle, I was going outside the wire and I had been preparing myself mentally and emotionally to take a life if necessary. And then sometime in that period also, uh, I started to get nightmares. I also found myself less comfortable in crowds than I had been before I I left. But none of it was horribly severe uh, at first. I mean, it took time for this stuff to get to a point where it fully disrupted my life. Okay. So you're just noticing, you're noticing things, but you're thinking, well, that's typical. That's, you know, that goes with the territory. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking, you know, this will go away, right? Like, um, I'm, I, I also, I didn't have, the, I remember feeling like I didn't have the same range of emotions available to me that I had prior to going, and I, I felt like that made sense too because, you know, during the deployment, it, it was like I just didn't use as many emotions, right? You were bored, you were sleeping, you were hungry, you were frightened enough to have this low-level simmering anger necessary to be prepared. And sometimes you're just like laughing in gallows humor, but, but there wasn't like a lot of room for other stuff. And so I, I felt like, yeah, I'm kind of redeveloping this stuff. And I just thought, you know, it'll go away eventually. And the, the problem with that is that I kept thinking stuff was going away because my symptoms kept evolving and changing. So for instance, you know, after a while I got to drive places. So I'm getting in the car all the time and it wasn't that long before getting in the car wasn't a problem. And so I'm thinking, oh, okay, I'm getting better, right? And then with the nightmares, for instance, after a few years, yeah, they became more like night terrors and I started to have sleep paralysis and that was terrible. But after a few years, the setting of the nightmares was less often Afghanistan or even less often a military context. It was instead of me, somebody coming in to kidnap me in one of the meetings I took in Afghanistan, now it was somebody coming into my home and coming after my family. And so what I didn't know and what I learned later in therapy was that's really dangerous. Actually, things were evolving in my mind and reinforcing the hypervigilance that I was having during the day because I felt like I was in danger all the time. And now my subconscious was reinforcing that because I was in danger in my current environs in my subconscious. But in my head, I'm trying to tell myself a story about how I'm getting better. So I'm going, well, these aren't connected to my service because they don't even happen in Afghanistan anymore. But it was later... 10 years later or so in therapy that I learned, no, actually that's an evolution of your nightmares and it's really dangerous. 
Yeah. So you took the mindset that you had over there and just and applied it to to life stateside. Yeah. I mean, it's really like I never I never left because my my brain felt like, okay, this vigilance, this kept us alive. It's how we survive. And that became, unbeknownst to me, yes, it's how we physically survive, but it also became, it's how we survive in everything else. It's how our career moves forward. So it was like, you know, those carnival games where you have the hammer and you hit it and, and you try and get, you try and get the bell, the ring at the very top, right? Well, it was like every threat to me hit the bell because I, my brain couldn't discern between, oh, that's annoying. Oh, that might be a career problematic and we're going to die. So it, it just, it, everything went to the top of the threat meter. Because in Afghanistan, any threat could, had the potential to be a fatal threat. Yeah. And not even necessarily like in my job, it didn't even have to be every threat, right? It was like anything that you couldn't control. So for me, when you're going into a meeting with people who you don't really know what you're in for and you're all the way in, right? You're inside their, their location and nobody knows you're there. It was anything that wasn't supposed to be where it was or anything out of place you had to be controlled for, right? So then, I mean, I, I can remember having night terrors sometimes that were as simple as there was a toaster somewhere where it wasn't supposed to be in my house. And the signal that went off in my head was something is amiss. I'm in danger. And, and that made no sense to me until I, until many years later when I went to therapy and that was explained to me as your brain learned that either it controls everything or you're going to die. Right. And you can't control everything. And therefore you always feel like you're going to die. Right. When you returned, you start on well, this. Well, I, oh. I would actually correct that because yeah. I didn't believe that I couldn't control everything. So uh, it was more okay. like it was more like every waking moment for me was uh, an effort to control everything uh, and to to exercise control over everything around me, which wasn't possible. But that wasn't something I I accepted. Right. When you returned, you started before long on this on this political life that was just ferociously ambitious. I, I got exhausted just reading about your campaigning, <laughs> yeah. fundraising, campaigning, never sleeping. Were you trying to keep yourself occupied so that you could get away from these other thoughts? Yeah, I think I think it was a combination of about three things. Um, one, I've gotten much better at giving myself credit in retrospect for the fact that I actually did want to make my community and my country a better place. That's how my parents had raised me. It's why I joined the military in the first place. It's why I wanted to run for office in the first place. So I'm much better now about giving myself credit for that. The other two things have to do with the the way I, as you said, ferociously attacked this. And that is one, yeah, unknown to myself, a really strong desire to not be alone with my own thoughts. So constantly staying busy, constantly staying challenged, and engaged and utilizing my mind and my body so that I wouldn't be left alone with the darkness, the disruptive memories and the symptoms and, and the, the negative emotions. I didn't realize that's what I was doing. I would express that as something like, I just have to keep going, or I feel good when I'm going, I feel good when I'm doing. That was the only thing that would kind of quiet the you know invisible storm in my mind. The third thing, which I have also come to, you know, since going to treatment is a search for a redemption of some kind. So 
you know, not uncommon to people who have experienced trauma, I developed a really, really, eventually really low opinion of myself as a human being. Now, the thing about this was I, I never developed uh, anything less than the highest possible level of self-confidence in my abilities. I, from start to finish, I mean, to this day, that's, I'm, I'm a, I'm an irrationally confident person. Right? That's, <laughs> that's how my parents raised me. So the whole time I believed that I was the most talented, most capable politician in the country. I also simultaneously believed that I was an irredeemable piece of shit as a human being. And so what I was doing, I, I now realize is I was trying to take my success and my confidence and my, my accomplishments and use them as a salve to treat or to sort of bandage my increasingly low self-esteem, which had to do with the fact that I just felt like I hadn't done enough in, in the army. I, I knew people who had been hurt. I knew people who had done so much more than me. And I just felt irredeemable. So a lot of what I was doing was a sort of fruitless search for redemption. You were trying to fill the hole with work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think a lot of it comes from, you know, I'm 41 years old. I grew up in the 80s and the 90s. And I grew up on movies like Top Gun, where the story, and I, I'm not going to knock Top Gun. I like both Top Gun movies. I've seen both many times now. But the story of those movies and of so many movies, particularly about the military during those years, are about people who undergo trauma. And then the way they get past that trauma is through some singular act of heroic redemption. If you think about Top Gun, I mean, Goose dies. Maverick is told, hey, you got to get over it. A week later, he kills two bad guys over the Indian Ocean, and he's good to go. Right. That's the story we were told over and over again. That's the American myth about trauma, is that there's a there's a way uh, out of it that has to do with redemption. But that's not true. But I, I had internalized that idea. And so in my mind, if I could achieve the next office, if I could make some reform, whatever it was at any given point that would make people's lives better, then I would feel redeemed. Then, I, you know, at one point it was, if I can go back to Afghanistan and maybe get myself hurt, you know, because as you know, from reading the book, I, I tried to go back and they wouldn't let me because they, it was a bureaucratic thing that I'm still a little angry about, even though I shouldn't be. Um, so that that's, I think, what the third part of it was, was just trying to feel redeemed when in reality, that was a mirage. It wasn't, it wasn't something I was going to achieve no matter, no matter what I achieved. Well, and it's, it's kind of part of the American mythology too. And, and surely you were exposed to this in, in the military and in politics that, and especially from the eighties and nineties that you have to outwork everybody else. It's this, right. it, you know, you first one there, last one to leave kind of mentality that really encourages people to completely subjugate themselves and completely ignore all other aspects of their of their life to fit into again what you describe as this mythology. Yeah, I came to believe that I was living this very large and interesting and consequential life that I was not experiencing. That you know, I I didn't feel like I was a participant in it. And as my mental health declined, my physical health declined as well which is something that's changed a great deal since I, I got help. But I, I came to feel like I was resigned to live a short life of consequence. More with Jason Kander in just a moment.
I'm Jackie Cation. Hello, I'm Lori Kilmerton. We do a podcast called The Jackie and Lori Show, and you could listen to it anytime you want it because there's hundreds of episodes. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing comedy forever, and we should both quit. So why don't you listen up <laughs> before we leave this not only terrible business, but this awful world. And find out why we can't. Because we love it so. <laughs> Jackie and Lori Show, every week here on MaximumFun.org. Back with Jason Kander, author of Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. Part of what's really interesting about your book, Invisible Storm, is the sections that your wife writes, kind of commenting on on how it was all going down from, from her perspective. You're busily running for office after office and all that's involved with that and being away from home. Is she noticing this as something wrong or is she noticing this as, yeah, he's ambitious. He, he wants to get things. I think she, she, she writes in the book that she at some point did know that, that we had a problem here, the both of us, because she ended up with secondary post-traumatic stress from living with me. But uh, not, I wasn't violent or anything. It's just when somebody is constantly telling you how much danger you're in and is having these night terrors next to you in bed, you can, it can sort of seep into you. But you know, what she writes is that she ended up, I think the way she puts it in the book is that rather than throw me a life preserver, she wound up just jumping in and drowning next to me. And those sections of the book where she writes in first person, it's, you know, a page or two in each chapter are my favorite parts of the book for a few reasons. One, I'm not the only best-selling author in the family. When you have a really talented author, it's good to have her give her perspective as well. Two, one of the things I worked very hard to do with the book is make sure that people who had not experienced trauma or people who had not been to therapy for trauma could connect with what I was describing and the experiences I was describing. And that meant that I didn't want to introduce the vocabulary, the lexicon of therapy until the part of the book where I, as the narrator, was starting to get therapy and starting to learn that lexicon. So, you know, if, if in the early part of the book, I tell you as the reader that I was hypervigilant, nobody's going to connect with that. But if I tell you that I felt like there was danger all around me and that other people didn't understand how dangerous the world was, that's a much easier thing to understand. The problem with that is it meant that as the narrator, I have to return to my prior mindset. And I'm not a particularly reliable narrator at that point because I'm telling you things from my perspective and my perspective was colored by trauma. So to have an additional narrator there to explain what she was observing in me and how my behavior was changing is, is I think, very helpful to the reader. And then the last reason is we really wanted people to know know about secondary post-traumatic stress because we, you know, we didn't know about it. And before I went to therapy and it's important, and I guess if I'd add one more reason, it's because the book is two things that people don't expect. One is it's funny, which I think is important. And two, it's a love story. I mean, really at the end of the day, the book is a story about two people who got together in high school and are, have now had two kids and have spent this life together and been through all this and come through it and through some very difficult times in our marriage. Surely you knew what PTSD was by the by the time you I mean you're a smart guy you've been to law school you've been in the world did it ever occur to you as your mind was 
telling you these things and, and your health was deteriorating, did it ever occur to you, hey, maybe I have this PTSD I've heard so much about? It, it occurred to me. Uh, here's how it worked. Um, initially, what I did is I, I would, whenever I would, you know, think maybe I have PTSD, I would like look it up and I would read about it and I would read it in such a way that I could, I was within the lines, I was arguing against it. I was just, it was like, like a law school fact pattern where I'm distinguishing things. I'm, I'm, I'm making the case as I'm reading it as, as to how it doesn't apply to me because I'm, I'm reading it very selectively. I'm interpreting it in a certain way. And that was for a combination of reasons. One, look, when the way the media portrays PTSD, nobody ever portrays the majority of people with PTSD, which is people like me who've been to treatment and they go on with their lives and it, you know, you manage it and it doesn't disrupt your life. I wasn't aware of that. I, you know, I, I thought that PTSD was the way it's portrayed in the media all the time. I thought it was basically a terminal diagnosis. You end up becoming violent and eventually you kill yourself. And if nothing else, you kill your career. So I wasn't in any way interested in being open-minded to that diagnosis. The other thing about it was that I felt like claiming the, the label of PTSD was stolen valor. Because look, I went to Afghanistan and I never fired my weapon. In my mind, until, until I was set straight by somebody at the VA, in my mind, I was definitively not a combat veteran. I was just a jerk who went to meetings. And it took somebody, it took a clinical social worker at the VA saying my experience back to me and saying, look, you went to the most dangerous place on the planet. You were vulnerable for hours at a time, out basically by yourself, meeting with people who might want to kill you. That is a traumatic experience. That is combat, whether you fired your weapon or not. And because I didn't see myself as a combat veteran, and I had friends who had PTSD, but I also had friends who had been shot, been blown up. In my mind, if I were to say even to myself that this is PTSD, what's the difference between that and going around wearing a purple heart that I had not earned? I saw no difference in that. And so between those two things, I was extremely reluctant to see it as PTSD. And, and then I guess the last thing was, even when I started to get past those things because my situation had become so severe, then I was like, well, I'm running for president. I, I can't have PTSD. Mm, surely nobody who can run for president has PTSD. That's what I thought. So you, you end up running for the U.S. Senate in Missouri, narrowly losing, but not long after that, Barack Obama, of all people, is encouraging you, it sounds like, at least talking positively about the idea of you running for president. And I got to think you're deteriorating all this time. And that's a pretty interesting intersection of lines on that graph. What was happening in your mind when you were having a conversation with, with Barack Obama about that? I remember sitting there and I remember one piece of advice that he gave me that really stands out as to the question you asked was he talked about the importance of being able to ignore both the hype and the criticism about, you know, ignore the way you were publicly portrayed and what your persona was and still remember who you were as a person and be able to be comfortable and present with your own head. And I remember thinking, just looking at him and thinking to myself, yeah, this is a man who's been very good at that. And that is not something that I'm good at because at that point in my life, I was, you know, the last place I wanted to be was in my own head. And, and what I was using, as I mentioned, in order to alleviate some of that pain was adulation, public approval, achievement to sort of create some 
scintilla of evidence for myself to rebut the story I was telling myself about who I was as a person. Like I said, I was exhausted reading about your career and in a relatively short book too. It's it's really it's really a sprint of a read and you're just as winded after the sprint. Did it wear you down? Were you tired? Were you mentally exhausted at this point? You know, having gone through the war, having gone through all these political races, did it just did it start to wear you out or did you get fuel from it? Well, I was worn out for 11 years. But I only felt worthy when I was totally spent. Like when my back hurt like crazy, when I my eyes burned from being so tired. That was the only time that I would feel worthy because then I felt like, okay, I've given everything. I've given everything I have. You know, now I feel like a little bit of respect for myself. But then by the time I decided, you know, I made two real decisions that were my exit out of running for office, or out of that chapter of, of public life, which was one, I decided not to run for president. I decided to drop out of that before announcing. Everybody knew I was running. I was running all over the country, you know, doing politics. But I decided to, instead of do that, to run for mayor of Kansas City. And then even though we were off to the races and going to win that race comfortably, I decided uh, to call that off. And those two things, the first part, the first decision I made was largely because I was exhausted. I was becoming so depressed that I was having some suicidal thoughts at that point. But really, I just felt like I'm done. I'm at the end of the line. I've given everything I have here, and I, I can't do it for another year and a half. Um, because you got to remember, I hadn't had a good night's sleep since I came home from Afghanistan, like almost 11 years earlier at that point. And so I, I just felt like I, I couldn't do it, which I had a lot of shame about bailing on that to begin with. And then by the time I drop out of the mayor's race to go get treatment, that was more because I was afraid I was going to hurt myself because my suicidal thoughts had become so frequent. But yeah, I was completely exhausted all the time. It seems like you had this sort of mental scoreboard going of of what was okay for you to do, what wasn't okay, like how much pain you were experienced relative to what other people who were in Afghanistan went through and what you deserved and what you didn't deserve. Did that, that sort of scoring system, has that always been with you or was that a result of the trauma that you faced? You know, I think the only way in which it has always been there is like, I, for whatever reason, I, I was even before the army, I was a very driven, very competitive person, right? You know, like uh, I was a baseball player in high school and, and was very serious about it all the way through. And then was a, uh, a debater and was frankly more successful at that than I was at baseball. And, but, but very driven with that as well. And, and yeah. And in my career before deploying, I, I was still very driven. You know, I, I had planned to run for office. I had, you know, all that stuff. But what changed is that Prior to that, I don't think that became my measure of whether I was worth a damn, like prior to the to deploying. And when I came home, because I had only been there four months and because I didn't feel like I'd done enough, it, it sort of replaced any basic self-respect that I had, any basic uh, self-esteem that I had. Was And so I, and then with trauma, that became... Uh, like a contest for me, like I was, I was, and that I was always losing. So I, I was constantly trying to compare what I had been through 
which I didn't even see as trauma at the time, to what other people had been through, and then really trying to gain some perspective. But that wasn't what I was really doing. What I was really doing was just convincing myself that what I went through was irrelevant and didn't matter and was nothing, and therefore was not worthy of paying any attention to. Just ahead, Jason hits bottom and stops running from the truth. Hi, it's Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun. I am breaking into this programming to say thank you to Max Fund's members. Your purchases in this year's post Max Fund Drive patch sale raised over $50,000 for Trans Lifeline. Maybe you already know about the good work that Trans Lifeline does. If you don't, they're a trans-run organization that offers direct emotional and financial support to trans people in crisis. If you want to learn more about the work Trans Lifeline does or support them further, go to translifeline.org. Thanks for supporting Maximum Fun. Thanks for supporting Trans Lifeline. And thanks for being awesome people who want to do good in the world. Back with Jason Kander, Army veteran and former politician. You drop out of the race for mayor of Kansas City, a race that you were going to win. Did that feel like hitting bottom or did that feel like you were on the upswing because you had finally put on the brakes and were going to get some help? Oh, that was hitting bottom. I, I hit bottom before I announced I was pulling out because I just got to a point where I just couldn't function. I was just, and I remember saying, I'm done. Like that said, I can't do anything else. I'm, I'm done. And so then when I decided to go get treatment, I was, you know, it was weeks where I was still like just completely bottomed out. The one good part about it was, is I, I had removed a lot of pressure on myself, but I had replaced it with a new pressure, which was, it felt like the whole world was like, you know, assuming that I was just in a fetal position in a corner when in reality I was going to therapy and trying to figure out how to be helpful around the house. And, and so it was, it was a confusing time and it, it took, it took a, at least six or seven months before I started to feel like I might have any concept of who I am now and what the rest of my life might look like. Did you resist at all in therapy? Like if, you know, they say, hey, you've got PTSD, you've got trauma issues, you've got a clinical depression thing going on. Did you fight that? Uh, no, because I had just been fighting the idea of getting help for almost 11 years. By the time I went to therapy, I like I remember at one point, the first person I met at the VA saying, man, you are ready for therapy. Like by the time I went, I was like, look, I'm out of ideas. I'm all I'm bought in on this completely. That said, like there are natural things that you resist and that you don't want to do them, but I did them. I mean, and I'd let people read the book to, I don't want to get super into the weeds on it, but there, there are parts of therapy, many parts that are very difficult. And so I certainly, there were certainly a lot of days where I didn't want to do the homework that my therapist gave me, but I knew it was important. So I did it. What kind of homework? Oh, stuff like, like when I would be in a therapy session, I would recount a memory from Afghanistan for my therapist and I would record it. He would have me record it on my phone, uh, record myself doing that. And then 
I would have to listen to it every day between therapy sessions and I wasn't allowed to multitask. I just had to lay down, close my eyes and listen. And the usefulness of that is that you get to the point where that, that memory no longer has a grip on you. You sort of feel like you have a hold on it. And you know, it wasn't pleasant. I would, at first my body would kind of go into a fight mode and then, and I would, you know, sweat and stuff like that. And then, but then other stuff like having to go to a restaurant and with the goal of, I'm going to sit with my back to the door for 45 minutes, you know, or I'm, I'm going to go on a walk and I'm not going to look behind me for a whole block, you know, stuff like that. They were very difficult and unpleasant, but over time you get better at it and, uh, and then it becomes a lot less unpleasant. Were you eventually able to let go of this idea that, that your pain was somehow less and less deserving of attention than other people's pain? You know, that idea never really goes away. And I think this is probably true for pretty much everybody. It never really goes away. The difference now is that I can put that in its place and I know what that is. So when I have the instinct to undersell my own experience or to just compare it to other people's unfavorably, now I've been, I've had this education of therapy and I'm, and I'm able to go, well, that's not real. Like that emotion doesn't matter. It's unhelpful and it's not doing you any good. So it's sort of like, I don't know if you meditate, but like when you meditate, there's this practice of noting where you have a thought and you're like, I'm not going to deal with that thought. I'm going to note that that thought is there and I'm going to let it go by. It's sort of like that. It's I'm, and, and I'm the same way with hypervigilance, you know, like when my son, my son's nine and he, when he turned nine, he was like, I want to go on a walk around the block, just me. Like, and we have a long, big block, you know, where you can't see him. And I was like, okay, you know, you can do that. And the whole time my body and brain are like, you got to go get eyes on him. But I'm like, but I'm, but I just had to tell myself, I had to note it and go, okay, that's not real. He's fine. You know, and this is important. And so it's, it's very similar to that. And that's how you, with therapy, a lot of people have this notion that you go in because you've got a specific problem and then that gets solved, that it's like car repair. And then, you know, the, then you never have to deal with it. But it sounds like it's just, it's an ongoing management issue. You, you build new skills to manage this thing that's, that's part of you now. Yeah, I, I compare it to my knee injury, actually. You know, I, I, I got that knee injury before I went into the Army. I got surgery and I got physical therapy. And, you know, I still have some issues with my knee, but I know what to do for my knee. You know, like at this point, I play competitive baseball again. And like, I'm, you know, not to brag, I'm, I'm pretty fast. Like I play center field, I steal bases, but I got to ice my knee after a game. And frankly, I ice my knee half of the days in the week, just from working out or whatever. If I don't ice my knee, well, I can't go out and do what I want to do. But if I do ice my knee, then nothing's stopping me. And PTSD is the same thing. It's an, it's an injury that occurred to my brain. It's not curable. It's never going away, but I know how to manage it. And that means it's not going to disrupt my life or limit me from doing anything that I want to do. How did COVID go for you? Because you know, especially in the early days of COVID, it's, here's this threat. It might be terrible. It's killing people. How did you weather that? Yeah, that was really hard. Uh, the the early part of COVID when we didn't know anything and we were wiping down our groceries, you know, I found myself like when I would go to the grocery store with, you know, gloves on and a mask and all that, I 
would catch myself bawling my fists a lot. And like, just, you know, it was a little too familiar. The idea that the enemy is all around you, but you can't necessarily see him and you don't know where it's coming from. It was pretty triggering for somebody like me. But, you know, I, I eventually got better. I think one, we all just kind of got used to it. I, you know, just like, just like I had to go and sit with my back to a door in a restaurant. After a while, you live in something long enough, you, you become accustomed to it. And then the other thing is just events. Like I remember when my parents got the vaccine, I remember feeling like that was a huge weight off and that I could relax a little. So that's, that's not a factor of like, I, you know, overcame something. That's just, I gained a little bit of a feeling of control over a situation I didn't feel I had any control over. To prepare for for an interview, I watch a lot of other interviews with whoever I've been talking to. So I've, I've seen a lot of people interview you. And they always ask if you're going to run for something again. And I'm not mm-hmm. going to ask that because I read the book and I know that the answer is, I don't know, maybe after a long time, maybe. Who, who knows? Mm-hmm. But I, is that triggering for you when, when society is calling out for you to, to run for something again, to you know, to rescue this sort of messed up political discourse that, that we're all in is like, does that do anything for you that's adverse to your mental health? It's not triggering. I'd say sometimes, sometimes it's sort of momentarily confusing in the sense of like, in the sense of like, should I be doing that? And then I'm like, no. (laughs) So yeah, it's, I, I wouldn't say that that's triggering for me. Now the news can be, you know, like when there's a shooting or, you know, anything where I feel like, you know, maybe I should have somehow done more, whatever. Like, but I think that's all of us at this point. You know, when I'm asked that question, I'm asked it all the time. I, as I do in the book, I, I very firmly always say, yeah, I still think I'd be a really good president. And yeah, maybe one day I'll run for that. I don't know. Not something I want to do right now. Maybe that'll change. But the reason I say that is not, I think a lot of people hear it and they think, oh, well, look at that. He's preserving that opportunity. He's leaving that out there. Like, because I get it that in the zeitgeist, I'm, I'm still a politician. Like, that's how I exist in popular culture. And I don't know if I'm comfortable with that, but I've accepted that. The reason I say it over and over again is because there's people who are listening to me right now who are in a position to hire people. And they're in a position to hire combat veterans, to hire victims of domestic violence, people who have been in a bad car accident or a bad divorce or, you know, had a really traumatic childhood, people who they know have trauma and who they might even know have PTSD. I want to make sure that anybody who listens to me answer that question never looks at a person like that and feels like, well, they can't do this job. So I figure if I honestly say over and over again, yeah, one day I might decide to run for president and I think I'd still be really good at it. I can't think of a better way for me to deliver the message that if you've been treated for PTSD, your PTSD is not going to limit you from doing anything. You write in the book about declining all interviews and then accepting interviews. Were you nervous going into this interview today or are you comfortable by now? I'm so comfortable that, I mean, to be honest, you know, this is, I've done over a hundred interviews for, for the book, which is great, right? Like I'm not complaining. I, I, I'm really glad that there's been so much attention on it. The 
all of my royalties from the book go to Veterans Community Project to fight veteran suicide and veteran homelessness. So like I, I appreciate the opportunity and I feel great about it. But yeah, I'm very comfortable with it. Is it because you've talked so much about it that you're comfortable with it? It's because I've talked so much about it, but it's also because I, writing this book and putting it out there, there's a lot of reasons not to do it, right? Like, let's be real. Like in the political environment we're in right now, if I were to run for office right now, like whatever Republican I'd run against would have all sorts of Trump-like nicknames for me and they'd pull all sorts of, you know, I did their opposition research for them. I wrote about me not being able to sleep because I'm, you know, stalking my house with a revolver, you know, like all that stuff. You just say I was crazy. It's not, you know, so there's a lot of reasons not to do it. And there's, there were people close to me who were very nervous for me. And then of course the major reason to do it is because I knew that I needed a book like this 14 years ago. And then if I had read it, I might've made a different choice and I would have got and gone and gotten help. That's the reason I wrote it is for people who are in that position. But there is an ancillary benefit to me personally. And that ancillary benefit is, look, when you, when you are a public person and you tell the whole world that you are all messed up with PTSD and that you are suicidal, and then you just disappear. What happens is, is that whether you're meeting people like you know, for real in person, or whether you're just thinking about the way people regard you who you may have never met, you can't help but be aware that they are worried you're going to spontaneously combust at any given time. The last thing they heard was that you were not okay. And so the ancillary benefit to me personally in talking about this stuff is it is nice to have other people know, like, I'm in a post-traumatic growth chapter of my life. I'm doing well. I'm okay. Because there's something about having a lot of people you don't know and a lot of people you do know project a lot of sympathy and pity onto you that can make you feel kind of pitiful. And I don't like feeling that way. So I guess what I get out of it is I like people knowing that uh, I came through this and that I'm doing well. The main reason is I want them to know that they can come through it and that they can do well. And I want to motivate more people to understand that PTSD is not a terminal diagnosis. The vast majority of people who go to get help do get better. It doesn't disrupt their life anymore. But what I get out of it is I get to know that like the parents of the kids on the on the Little League team that I coach, my son's Little League team, you know, the ones who have read the book, they know who I am now. And like, those are my friends. And I want them to understand like, I'm doing pretty well. And you don't have to have any like pity for me. The book is Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. Jason Kander, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Most of us will not be in a position where Barack Obama advises us to run for president. He's never even broached the subject with me. But I think the idea of attempting to stave off a mental health problem by filling up all your time with work, with ambition, with relentless activity, with achievements, I think that's relatable. I think maybe some of you listening right now to this can relate to that. It doesn't work, of course. The mental health problem simply waits for you to get done with all your busy activity and then comes after you. But that doesn't stop people from trying it. And Laura House is here with us for a meditation moment. Hi, Laura. Hello. 
You know, I talk to people about mental health and I, I sometimes say, well, you know, what's the difference between, you know, what's something that is a mental exercise and something that is a physical exercise? And I get mm-hmm. admonished people saying it's the same thing. If you do something good for your mind, it's good for your body. If you do something good for your body, it's good for your mind. And, and meditation is, is a, even for a moment, kind of, kind of ticks both those boxes, doesn't it? It is. It's definitely good for the the whole system and it's for some reason we have like a weird avoidance to it mm. i think cuz stress is addictive so sometimes yes. we have a hard, it's it's like our brain like a toddler that won't go to bed sometimes our <laughs> brain cuz but no wait no i i want to stay what what's going on yeah we get fussy yeah we get fussy <laughs> well let's defussify ourselves here <laughs> defussification Coming up. That's right. There you go. So get comfortable. Be somewhere you can close your eyes. And the first thing you do is just notice your breath. It's already happening. So it's sort of easily looking in that direction. You'll notice that you're also having thoughts, which is completely natural. So we're noticing our breath. And as thoughts come in, our mind will sort of get interested in them, which is fine. But when you're aware of that, you just notice your breath again. Letting go of the need to finish those thoughts and let go. Go ahead and open your eyes. So yeah, I'm told we get dopamine, serotonin, like there's all these, we feel like we're not doing anything, but we're actually, our body's doing a lot when we meditate. Oh, it's like a little buffet. (laughs) It's a little- Of the good good stuff. Good neurotransmitter buffet. Yeah, it's a Sunday bar. (laughs) Yeah, load up. (laughs) (laughs) Laura House can be heard on the Tiny Victories podcast here on the Maximum Fun Network with Annabelle Gerwich is the co-host of that one. You can also look her up on the internet, laurahouse.com. Laura, thank you. Thank you. Next time on Depression Mode, Kristen Hirsch has always made music people could relate to. She just didn't always relate to most people. By the time I was playing out and being called crazy, I had started to realize, well, other people remember being on stage. Other people remember writing and rehearsing and playing. But it was such a god to me. It was such a thing to to worship. Everyone who has ever cared about me has told me to stop playing, as if I could stop the music that way, yeah. If people support our show, we keep having a show. If they don't, it's all over. Let's not have it be over. It's so easy to join Depression Mode. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash join. 
find a level that works for you, and then select Depression Mode from the list of shows. Hit subscribe, give us five stars, write rave reviews. That helps us a lot. The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available in the United States by calling 988. The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text HOME to 741741. Our electric mail address is depressionmode at maximumfun.org. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available on Substack. Search that up. I'm on Twitter at John Moe. Hi, credits listeners. Jason Kander's great uncle is John Kander, who is half of the songwriting duo Kander and Ebb. Among many other songs, they wrote New York, New York. I didn't know where else to put that information in the show, so I put it in the High Credits Listeners section. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No Oh, hey, it's Heidi from Minneapolis. I just wanted to let you know you're doing a good job, and I'm so glad we're riding around on this pale blue dot together. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.